Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I don't know if I've mentioned this before or not, but my daughter says that I habitually run into chatting accidents. It's a word that she came up with for me when I think she was nine or ten. And we were at the grocery store and ran into a parent from the PTA, and we had a conversation on accident. Even though my daughter is now technically an adult, chatting accidents is still one of my favorite words. And I think that it perfectly sums up what happens to me a lot when I'm in person <laughs> at conferences. And I had so many amazing chatting accidents at the most recent conference I attended, which was MRC Vegas in March. And one of those chatting accidents was with Neil McCoureg. I've known Neil for several years. We haven't seen each other in person in, I don't know, five or six, but we have a couple of very close friends in common. So it feels like we've known each other forever. But also, if you've been in fraud for a while or you've had the chance to go to a conference or just gotten to meet other people in our industry locally, you know that it's possible to just have an instant connection with people very quickly because not only are we passionate about the same industry, but oftentimes I would say nine out of 10, a lot of, we have a lot of other things in common, right? What drives us as humans and what we think is important and sometimes our social awkwardness or <laughs> our ADHD or our anxiety and, you know, you name it, right? Neil was one of those people that I got to have a chatting accident with in Vegas. It was actually the last night, so I was very tired, as was he, but it was still really good to catch up a bit. And as he kind of reminded me that he's worked in three different countries for two different companies uh, just over the last decade or so, and he was talking about some of the things he's learned through that and just how much he really enjoys leading people and just being a leader way more than a manager of people, no matter where they are in the world, but how there's certain things you have to really take into consideration, especially if you're leading teams internationally or you're living in other countries. I stopped in mid-conversation to ask him if he'd be willing to share some of his experiences on fraudology. And luckily for all of us, he said yes. And he made the time, not just for one episode, but for two. And I'm so glad he did. And I know you will be too. On today's episode, Neil will talk about the unique progression of his career. The first seven years being spent at StubHub, which is part of, was part of eBay. And he was in several positions, accidentally falling into fraud like so many of us do. And then he worked his way up, leading teams and living in three different countries. Over the seven years that he was at StubHub, he, they experienced massive growth, which we know that growth and innovation and new business models often attracts a lot of innovation on the fraud side <laughs> and a lot of growth and growing pains and lessons through all of that in just a very fast-paced environment. And I know that each leader within that fraud organization over different periods of time just became experts with a lifetime of 
experience and trial and errors. We've already had Robert Capps as well as Eric Bowles on the podcast previously. They both, their times overlapped with Neil's a little bit. At Dubhub, there are at least four or five other just remarkable humans that have worked there who I've had the pleasure of knowing. I know there's even more than that, that all worked during that time. And they're each really incredible people because they had to learn a lot, right? It's trial by fire when you're in a fast growth startup. Anyone who's been in technology on the startup side knows that. And Neil is now the global fraud and risk manager for eShop World. So eShop World is actually a company that I was familiar with. From my time working for the Trade Association, I would often work with international merchants and get to go to a couple of the European events, which was such a good experience. I got to meet so many incredible people. eShop World is kind of a global extension for dozens of the world's largest brands. So they often run their e-commerce in all areas in hundreds of markets. So essentially, Neil is responsible for the fraud prevention, but also we know really it's the revenue protection, right? It's optimization and conversion of good orders in addition to preventing the bad for more than 50 of the world's biggest brands. So he has learned a lot in both positions and just is a wealth of knowledge. On a personal note, Neil is a thoughtful and dedicated leader, and he really has had a lifetime of experiences in the tech world and in online fraud in just over a decade. The people that I know who have had the privilege to report to him have really credited him a lot for leading them and seeing them for who they are and for just being an incredible leader. And he'll talk a little bit about his passion for being a leader in this episode as well as on Thursdays. And it comes through loud and clear. He's also just a really fun guy to hang out with in a bar or in a pub. And not only because he's Irish. <laughs> so on today's episode, as I mentioned, he'll talk about his career pro progression. And as he goes through his career progression, he'll talk about the different lessons he learned and some of the challenges and the opportunities that he got because of StubHub's massive growth, because it was a fast-growing international company, because he was able to really cross-pollinate a lot of good information from two different continents, essentially. We'll also, he'll also talk about, as he's talking about the progression of his career, he'll also touch on things to consider when you're hiring in other countries or when you're leading teams in other countries, whether you relocate internationally, which certainly is a possibility. If not with your current company, there are, you know, a handful or two of companies that come to my mind quickly that will relocate people, the right people for the right jobs. Or if it just means, not just, if it means leading a team internationally from where you are because of time zones and things like that, some companies choose to have more than one team in more than one hemisphere so that they can have full 24-hour coverage. There's also just so many nuances of international transactions and consumer behavior and all of that that can have a lot of opportunity as well as cost of employment and all that. But Neil will also talk about the things you need to consider as far as employment laws and how quickly you can hire someone, how quickly or not you can let them go and how you have to really scale that, especially for seasonality and how sometimes in the U.S. companies will hire quickly, but they'll fire quickly. Well, that's not possible in every company or country. So you need to think about that when you're setting up those teams. 
He'll also talk about the communication styles in different countries, like how we explain things, for example, especially in business, can be very different. And the culture and just everything else to consider. This was such a fun conversation and also just felt like the word that kept coming to my mind through the whole conversation for today was adaptability. And how sometimes as fraud leaders, we don't want to be adaptable, but we need to be in so many ways, whether that means moving to another country and figuring it out and trying to understand their culture and how they, what is okay and what is not might be the complete opposite from your country, things like that. So there's just a lot to learn in this. And then on Thursday, we're going to have a really good conversation about all kinds of things fraud related, primarily selecting the right solution provider and how to do that, especially if engineering resources are very restricted and you aren't able to do a live POC or proof of concept, which admittedly a lot of companies can't. But how can you really be able to verify the claims that a solution provider is making without running that. And he had some really good ideas. Honestly, it's stuck in my head and it's something that I want to actually create a, and I want to create some kind of a document or one page that, uh, a resource that really provides that because I hadn't heard some of the suggestions that he made as far as you're really making sure that the vendors you're talking to are the right ones for you and that they aren't just saying what they think you need to hear. Because there is, unfortunately, that happens a lot, especially now, especially because they know that you can't implement them for a POC and actually see how their performance is. So you'll definitely want to listen to that episode for sure. And then we'll also just talk about managing fraud vendors once you're working with them, where and when to apply manual review, the important role products should play in fraud prevention strategy, and just overall strategy nerd conversations that I know you'll all enjoy, whether you are in e-commerce or consumer-focused fintech or in banking. There's always something to learn from another fraud fighter, and I am really looking forward to you learning more from Neil McCoreg. I'll talk to you on Thursday. I am here with Neil McCorrig from eShop World. I have known Neil through dear friends of ours that we have in common in the fraud world. But as we know, within online fraud fighting, we are just one or two degrees of separation away from each other. But I got to get reunited with Neil at MRC in Vegas this year and was reminded of just how much of a unique career path he's had and experiences he's had and really wanted him to come and share those with all of us on the podcast, especially because admittedly, because I'm in the US, I know that I don't always focus on the rest of the world as much as I want to. So we're just going to dive in. Neil, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So I think the best place to start is where we start with almost everyone as far as how you got into fraud, knowing that I have yet to meet anyone who's been in fraud for more than maybe a year or two, who were, when they were young, they said, I'm going to be a fraud fighter because there was no such thing when we were growing up. How did you get into this crazy world? 
a hiring freeze, would you believe? I, as half this happened within the industry, but I just tripped into it completely. As you say, it's not something that most people have aspirations for, but I was working for StubHub at the time, which is part of the eBay organization. I spent a long time, a lot of good years there, but I entered in as a, as a customer service agent. Um, quite an entry-level position and we were branching out internationally and there was a plan to hire a couple of fraud analysts and then for whatever reason it, there, there was a hiring freeze temporarily for a couple of months and they needed to switch strategies so they looked to see if any of anybody within customer service was interested in it and to be completely honest I would have tried anything at the time I was young and I didn't know at all what I wanted to do oh, or yeah. how to achieve growth <laughs> in my career. So it was like, oh, something shiny to try. Maybe this will work. And it wasn't the only thing I did try, but it was like, you know, you would do it like one out of one or two or two days out of your five day week. And mm-hmm. I immediately loved it. The kind of the journey of the investigative journey of being a fraud analyst just clicked within me as a human being. And when I started manually reviewing orders, and making decisions on whether something was fraudulent or not, I loved it straight away. And I leaned really heavily into moving forward in that direction. So what are the things that made me smile about that? I actually didn't know that's how you originally got started. I knew you were at StubHub, but I actually had Robert Capps on the podcast last year. And he talked about how one of the best things he did was go to customer service and look for the people who had that little bit extra and who he thought would be good to cross train. I believe, I'm sure that one of the people he was thinking of when he said that was you. So full circle. He was a little bit far away, uh, Robert, at the time, because he was looking after the US, but the whole strategy in itself would have been indicative of how. So you're going back to talking about degrees of separation. That's a very (laughs) short one between me and Robert. For sure. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And so that actually led me to the next thing I was going to ask you is, I believe that you were, where were you located when you were in customer service? You weren't in the US yet. Yeah. So I was in Dublin, uh, which is where I'm from, where I am right now. I'm sure if anyone can hear you. Yeah. Good guessing. I know. I'm hoping I'm using the right accent because I did have to develop a slower iteration of how I speak. So yourself and other Americans can understand me. And depending on whatever mood I'm in, I can flip in in and out. And we're technically beyond work hours. So I might just flip back into my normal Dublin accent and then no one's going to understand what I'm saying. So it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Have you ever had anybody Irish on on the show before? Gosh, you're making me think. British for sure. I don't think Irish yet. No, no, I think you're the first. But I would also say that like with a lot of us and a lot of people with accents, even my American or whatever, or when I try to speak another language that I used to speak better when I was younger or something like that, I think alcohol can sometimes play a part in how thick an accent is as well. But Oh, for sure. Oh, that goes out the window, a couple of drinks and yeah, it's a different <laughs> level altogether. I was, yeah, I was going to say, yep, I've definitely heard that, the strong one too. But yeah, so you were in Dublin working in customer service for StubHub. And how long ago was that? That was 2013. So 10 That's years ago. Now. Yeah. yeah. 2013. I was not to give away my age specifically, but I was in my very early twenties back then 
trying to figure it all out. It seems like a long time ago now. But yeah, so I was in Dublin and eBay has their, still to this day, has their big operational center in Dublin. And the StubHub operational center there for customer service was located within that building. So I got involved. And then what happened was the fraud manager at the time was actually based in Luxembourg. eBay, StubHub had a payment license for how they were processing stuff and the trust and safety as it were which was the umbrella term for that fraud prevention was under, used to be used quite a lot. I think that's moving away a little bit within the industry. Trust and safety isn't used as much anymore. It was based in Luxembourg and there was a position for an immediate significant promotion. So I was doing part-time fraud prevention work as an analyst and this was a full-time specialist position. So it was it was a, it was a significant jump and I applied for that um, in Luxembourg. I don't know even much about Luxembourg. Lovely area, lovely place. Terribly boring, but it's lovely. And <laughs> lots of, yeah, lots of companies, ha- especially back then, had a small headquarters in Luxembourg for tax purposes. I remember that, but it was very like banking and very boring is a good way of saying it too. <laughs> Yeah, I meant it just, it's a unique place, but it's lovely. Anyway, I, so I applied for that and ultimately I had, I was going through this whole, do I really want to move to Luxembourg type of process? And then what happened was I didn't get, I didn't get the job. It was between me and one other person and I'll always remember. And then, so then I went back to my family and my friends was like, look, we don't have to worry about this anymore. It's not happening. And then this person who obviously I have no idea who it is, their references failed. So then I went through this whole emotional experience and then like (laughs) three or four weeks later, I get offered the job and ultimately then I was convinced by myself and my family to to take it. Off I went and it accelerated my career massively, taking that jump and moving to the set of where both fraud prevention and compliance was happening. So it wasn't just the transactional responsibilities of fraud prevention, but there was also compliance elements, which very much are connected, but under more of a regulated fashion, the anti-money laundering and Mm. identity verification elements that go along with that I got the duopoly of those experiences at the same time and it was really even to this day I never worked harder than I did for the time that I was there because it was all intense expansion times within the company and it was 10 12 hours days and I had the energy and the willingness to do it consistently (laughs) for a long time because I felt the growth benefit of what that was bringing I could the, the, I, I always say that within I was there I ended up being there for a year and a half mm-hmm. and I felt like I got four years five years experience within that time because it just was so fast and rapid and it was very beneficial for me. I can relate to that so much on so many levels. I think there are a lot of us that can, whether you came to fraud from customer service or not, for me, I did as well. And I also didn't have a life plan and didn't really think I would leave my hometown and didn't really think I would, you know, make much of myself. I mean, that not that like I thought I would be a failure. I just didn't know what my career was going to be. And then you fall into fraud and you start out on the manual review and there's some of us who or some people who just love the details and love manual review. And I think we all do in some ways, but then there are some of us who want to just keep growing, right? And stretching. And I want to do more and I want to learn more about higher level up, right? Or out. So for you, it was a little bit more anti-money laundering with, I remember at that time was fairly, you know, marketplaces were still fairly new and just realizing 
oh, seller accounts and buyer accounts can be used for money laundering, things like that. And because it was the high growth of your company, and I was back in the States working for the trade association at the time during those years, working with Robert and Eric and Ryan quite a bit, who are the, the kind of the, the three, depends on if we're going to call them the three stooges or the three people who like really built up that team. It, it was both who just in the massive growth. And I know that you guys, it, every day was a new problem that nobody had ever seen before and you were trying to figure out how to solve it. And that is so exciting. It's exhausting, but thankfully for both of us, I could also relate so much to earlier on in your career because I was in my mid, late 20s when I had my like craziest job of just like that and 12 hours a day. And somehow I had a four-year-old too. So I don't know what I was doing, but it was crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, I know. A that's a whole... <laughs> That's a whole other dynamic. I can't I imagine don't that. I don't. I can't tell you. She learned how to manually. She learned how to pull people's credit Sarah, reports so when she was Sarah like four. Yeah, that's yeah. It. Oh yeah. It was honestly because I had a laptop and I could take it home, and laptops were fairly new. That was really how. But yeah, just we all looking back, I'm like, if I could get all that done then, how come like? But word to the wise of anyone who's in that heyday now, enjoy it, but also know that it will slow down at some point. And so you were away from home and away from Dublin, but I'm sure that also helped you grow in other ways too. And then what next? What after your year and a half in Luxembourg? I have a little bit of a preview of that, but for you. What was next? What was next really was trying to figure out the entanglement of your personal and professional needs. <laughs> essentially, and prioritizing and also trying to maneuver both, really. I had not to go too off topic, but I just refused to date at all when I was there because I was <laughs> like, I'm not going to stay here forever. You know, I always was very much focused I, on my mind of getting back to Ireland at some stage and while professionally I felt I was flourishing personally I did want to go back to Ireland and then ultimately and I couldn't say this more and more positively the leadership within the international branch of StubHub had seen value in me and had seen and had shown understandability in my personal circumstances so when I said look I want to move back to Ireland but I love this company and I want to do it staying with the company and moving forward with the company to be fair to them at the time I'd become in this year and a half as well just to say I'd gone from I had transitioned from an individual contributor to a people manager for the first time while all this was going on I had one person in Luxembourg and I had another in Dublin and with the scale of how things were moving it made sense to split out the fraud and compliance functions so I moved back to Dublin and I became entirely focused on fraud prevention and did that did that within Dublin and it all then worked out but because of the backing of the leadership I had I was very happy and a couple of months later we acquired another ticketing company and and all of that craziness then worked out because I was able to focus primarily on one function rather than splitting my focus on two. Were you more in the management role then? So you were not, you weren't in the manual review because in Luxembourg, you kind of had to go up a level and manage people, but also manage the processes and make decisions around other things beyond just per transaction. So when you went back to Dublin, were you kind of more in a more of a management role and more, maybe not strategy, but more operations at that point? Yeah. And a year and a half, I think it was a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer than that doesn't seem like a lot but again there was an accelerated circumstance oh yeah about 
eight or nine months, maybe a year, I had gotten promoted while I was over there. So there you go. That was that transition. Mm-hmm. The Those transitions, obviously, between being the workbench, the manual review, working a queue, uh, moving into looking at strategy, focusing on management. It isn't completely black and white. Certainly wasn't at that stage. It's it, when you're doing it 80% mm-hmm. one day, you're doing the analyst analyst work and then the next day it's 75 so on and so forth it's not a cut off back then just with the technology that we had and again back then it was only what nine ten years ago but in fraud and you said earlier that 10 years feels like such a long time and i'm like yeah especially in fraud though because there are some people there are a lot of people that work in the same career span and not a lot changes in 10 years but as an industry, from a technology perspective, from a maturity level of the industry, from an acceptance level within companies, just I think back then too, we just didn't have all the things. So there was a lot, there was a, always had to be a manual review component. And I know for me, I often found that I would learn, they would both inform each other. So I think I've met some people who have been able to manage fraud without ever doing manual review. I don't know how they do it. For me, I was going from manually review doing extra orders that my team couldn't get through at night to having a 9am meeting with the CEO and the board because I worked for a startup. So it was like very small and explaining to them what was going on a higher level, but I was able to reference the things I'd seen in manual review. So they talked to each other. So I'd imagine that was helpful to you too, but you're right. It's not going from operations to strategy isn't always a straight line, but you, when you can start to see things from different perspectives, you can know what to pay attention to and whatnot. Yeah, I can't imagine having a different experience than learning the details of fraud yes, from the ground up. I know there's other people who have done it and they've done it successfully yes. and all of them. But for me, it was very much about that visualization from the very start and mm-hmm. learning a picture of the journey of how a good transaction and a bad transaction and how they look different and mm-hmm. how to figure that out and then transitioning those details in into a scale, into a report and looking at it at a higher level. That was how I did it and that's how it it really worked in terms of my own growth and development there's an organic nature to that 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 works quite well I feel yeah so you but you didn't stay in Dublin forever so let's keep going where in the world is Neil and (laughs) where else did your career take you because I think this will help for the rest of our conversation I think there's a lot of things that your geography and the experiences that you had it's not just both in life and in in all that through different geography is so unique there's other things obviously that make you great at what you do and unique but that's one that not everyone's had the ability to travel as much for their job yeah if you can split it up in terms of what makes a good fraud leader you look at the perspective of understanding fraud Mm. very well and then being a leader as very well as well and talking about the latter specifically now and it, and that really has a huge relationship with me not staying in one place i moved back to ireland then and i unpacked my bags and i said this is it now i was 
absolutely certain that I would stay in Ireland for the rest of my life. And what happened is just going back to it, StubHub acquired a company, Ticketbiz, which is now mm. pretty much StubHub International. And they had a much larger fraud prevention operation based out of Madrid. Mm. And in the initial, I was, I was the most senior within Trust and Safety International. And I was tasked with helping the integration, getting to know that team getting to know what they were doing from a process side, from a technology side, how that differed, how it was the same, and then how do we transition both the operations and technology Mm. and the messiness of having two platforms (laughs) and everything else that comes with that and all of the dependencies of other departments and wrap my head around and, and then trying to bring my seniors in the US along for that transition and keep them informed from a decision making perspective. And then I seen the writing on the wall pretty early in that it makes sense to for the long-term future of fraud prevention for Stubble International to be in Madrid and that wasn't something that was of interest to me at all so then I started to think about what do I do next and as all as this was happening there was a big shift in the U.S. operations from Connecticut to Utah and a the fraud manager for North America position opened up. And this time I was thinking to myself, this is America, right? This is different. This is the <laughs> big, right? And that was literally, that, what, that was how I yeah. thought of it. No, I get it. Yeah. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models. And their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. That's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. I remember being in in Vegas at a work event and 
thinking to myself, oh my God, I think I'm actually going to do it. And, <laughs> but I still had to, I, I interviewed for the role. Obviously it wasn't something that was going to be handed to me, but by any means, it was a significant jump in scale because the US at the time was by and large the bigger part of the business. And not only was it a bigger scale in terms of the fraud that you were dealing with, the revenue, the customers that you were dealing with, but from a leadership point of view, it was going from having two directs to having an organization with three directs mm-hmm. and 25 indirects at the time. So a much bigger leadership role than I was in. And that was something that I had to did, I, I had to showcase my ability to be able to make that transition from a leadership perspective. I think I had shown a lot of qualities from my understanding on fraud, my ability to adjust strategically. But there were some concerns about my ability to to transition to being a leader at that scale. And the mm. key element in which I, I showcased that was my ability to manage and grow relationships within the international business as a whole. Because mm. I think as a leadership, being a leader is one, one type of relationship. But how do you manage relationships with your cross-functional leaders within the organization, with your colleagues across the board and make things happen? and bring interest within within your function. Uh, and that was what I was successful at within the inter- international business and ultimately how I ended up with a bigger role in the US business. I think that's a great lesson for people who may just have a small team, right? And they want to be able to go into a different role, whether a bigger role, a higher role, whether that's in their current company or not, whether that's in their current country or not, and being able to transfer those skills of saying, yeah, I I couldn't lead a bigger team because that was all I had. But here, developing relationships outside of the department is just as important. And here's how I did it. And I also know that has so much value and something I talk, I try to talk about quite a bit on the podcast of just as easy as it is to get very focused on what's going on in our department and to get sidetracked and all that. It's equally, if not more important to be building and growing relationships externally because you never know when you'll need them or when they'll need you and it's or when you'll benefit from it like in this case I'm sure when you were growing those relationships with other parts of the company internationally you weren't thinking oh well this will help me be able to explain why I can take on a bigger team in the U.S. you don't know what you're preparing for but you just create these skills and are then able to translate them to the next role. Yeah, especially the earlier you are in your career as well, the less about being able to to transition what you're doing into responsibilities at a higher level. And depending on the company that you're in, they'll either be very good at showing you how to do that or they won't be. And unfortunately, (laughs) that happens as well. It does. Yeah. I know there's a lot of people that are often asking about career advancement and how can I plan for it? And I've always been not necessarily a planner. So maybe that's part of my downfall, but, or not downfall, but just like why I can't always relate to it. But I think especially in such a fast growing industry, you can't always know what's going to be next. You can strive for that, but you can start focusing on what skills do I need for that next step? How can I how can I learn and grow in the role I'm doing now and do the absolute best job so that next time when there is a next time and there is another opportunity, I can use those to say, hey, I haven't done that, but I've done this. And I think it transfers well. Yeah, absolutely. So off I went anyway to to Utah, which is about as... Uh, uh, <laughs> 
as different to Irish culture as is possible, I would say. <laughs> it's high up there. I remember this is a really good way. One of the things I do really want to talk about is the difference in managing people in Europe and the US. But I remember I remember getting there and everybody was so nice and I was just really skeptical about it. I was like, why is everybody so nice? <laughs> There was a kind of surface, like, welcomeness that was the kind of off-putting at the start. But it, it ended up being a, an incredible place to live, and I spent four years there. What was one of the biggest culture shocks for you, either in in your professional and or personal life, whether it's U.S.-specific or Utah-specific? Because there's, if people don't know, I know... Utah has some of, if not the strictest rules around alcohol in the U.S. And Ireland is known as the opposite. And I'm not just meaning to focus on alcohol, but it, that also translates into how you spend your free time and what just all those things. I'd imagine there were a lot of interesting changes and adap- adaptions that you needed to do. Yeah, I don't want to walk head first into a stereotype here, but no one told me about those bar loss before I left. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they didn't tell you that on purpose yeah. in the interview process. If you're clever, you can work around a lot of things. But no, they, that was definitely an element of it that was different. But they're just the culture in general, I found. But ultimate, and I can't, whether it's the difference between Utah and Ireland or any different, any two places in the world, right. I couldn't encourage someone, especially if they can do it younger in their life, to go out and and move somewhere new because ultimately what happens is talking about adaptation and the skills that you need Mm -hmm. to evolve in your career and to start somewhere new they go in tandem so you're just I at least had some people that I worked with that I knew some friends of ours that some friends that we have in common but at the same time it was like boom you're on your own your family's not here your close friends aren't here go talk to people go get to know them develop relationships develop confidence not an area I was I was lacking in but whatever you need to grow in you it's a sink or swim situation and that ability to build relationships build your ability to communicate and transition it goes in tandem with what you're doing from a professional perspective for sure I couldn't have said that better myself because I think that no matter what level of fraud you're looking at, whether it's a transaction level or it's a little higher up or it's even higher from that, or you're looking at it from AML or from payments or whatever, it's all about perspective. And one of the things that forces you to move and it is a sink or swim is changing your perspective. And while I did not have the same challenges or the same luxuries as you did in moving as far. I moved out of my hometown to a big city pretty early on in my career. And I had very similar experiences of, I barely know anyone. I have to figure this out. Okay. It is sink or swim, right? Am I going to want to, I don't want to go back. Funny enough. Now I have about a year ago, but at least I'm not going back with my tail between my legs and saying I failed. But I think that there are so many opportunities there and it also allows you to learn. And I think that is a core maybe not just a core value, but something that really unites those of us who are true fraud fighters with each other. We love to learn. And the more we learn, the more we can then get to apply that to taking new chances. Because if we don't learn anything, then we're just going to keep doing the same thing all the time. And the thing is, we can't in fraud because the bad guys are going to keep selling. Exactly. Yeah. Fraud's going to move on whether you do or not. So you need to be growing as well. So I think that's such good, good advice. And as far as 
since we're there and you mentioned it, we did want to talk about, or you do want to talk a little bit about just the differences in managing people and also in the business, right? The way that business is done and the way that business is looked at and the different metrics that are valued and talked about and all of that in meetings are very different culturally as well as in different countries and different markets. So what are what are some of the things that you would share about that time that you learned that might help others, whether they're going to move across the world or not? Yeah, another thing as well is just, you're absolutely right, but another big factor is your ability to hire, like hiring practices. Oh, yeah. And is a massive difference. How that all works in, in the different countries has an impact for you as a fraud leader or as any leader, but specifically when our function, the relationship with your manual review team, what you're doing on the technology side, what can you do with that manual review lever if you want to ramp it up? How can you do that? How quickly can you do that? that has a big sway on your strategy. So that was a big impact too. So very much from the strategic side of things. And then on the human, on the leadership side, it all boils down to communication styles and the communication style. Really want to get this right because it's very hard to explain, but the communication styles in the US and specifically maybe in Utah is even more potent versus Ireland is drastically different, right? We, we speak the same language for sure, but in terms of how we explain things, mm. blunt way as I possibly can, Irish people, in my opinion, and the Irish cultural way in which we communicate is quite direct and <laughs> probably a little bit more crap. <laughs> and if you're not, if you're, if that's new to you, it can be a little bit unsettling, but for people that are within the culture, it's very it's very kind of self-evident and then in in the u.s i i find that the political correctness is something that you have to be you have to respect and navigate around so i think for the first three months i didn't make a joke i was just like let's just I let's let it, i just want to get this absolutely get to know and i probably was going over the top in terms of ensuring that i was able to navigate the situation as i saw fit but also diversity and inclusion is such a value thing around the world and it's evolving in different countries and i'm not an expert by any means but obviously it's something specifically in the u.s that is so important and that's something that I really wanted to honor and understand because I didn't have the expertise coming in as a foreigner coming into the US to understand and being able to navigate. So my, I really had to focus and make sure that as a, as someone who was an employer and hire, hiring within, uh, within the US that I was doing that right. I think the fact that you were thoughtful about that and maybe too thoughtful, which I mean, I can definitely relate to is important. And it's not something that we talk about much, but I have, you know, just my own experience is different and definitely not as vast or as extreme. But uh, in my consultancy, I have worked with companies that have leadership in other countries and whether that's France or the UK or Japan or China. And one thing I've had to, that I don't think I did a good job of just that that I underestimated when working, especially with a French company and there was a ticking clock, right? I was very concerned about how much money they were losing. And so I just wanted to do things fast. Yeah. And I didn't take into consideration that they already had an opinion of Americans that they can come in and act like they know everything. And that certainly was not my intention, 
But in my mind, I was thinking, okay, you're paying me quite a bit of money and paid for my travel to come here. And you only gave me two or three days to get the law of the land out of the corporate office. I just need to move quick. But I, it was a misstep. And it was one that I don't know if I ever truly recovered from in their eyes, because to them, I was coming into their home and telling them that it was awful. And that wasn't at all my intention. But I think your point just can't be more overstated is, and I think that this is true, even if you're going into a new company too, but especially when you're going into a new culture and new country is just be aware of your own cultural differences. I mean, maybe you had a little bit of a leg up because you'd already worked with the US team a fair amount, right? In different Yeah, but in different ways, the way you worked with them at conferences in Vegas were probably a little bit different than the way you worked with them in video calls. But still, I think it's good to think of because I think too often some of us just get so focused on, I just want to do, or I want to prove myself, or I just want to do the job. And we don't think about that first impression or how we're doing things. Yeah, it's just one more point on leadership and looking at this from the perspective of managing the function within two different geographies. I'm a big believer in how, in, in how you lead is highly dependent on the individuals that you're leading as well and their needs. And it, we can generalize, obviously, in how things are different in Ireland and in the US, but you're going to have people in Ireland who don't, re- don't receive very direct uh, criticism or instruction. Then you're going to have people in the US that thrive off it Absolutely. too. And while the culture is a factor in maybe how that blend is mixed, you still need to understand how does individual A operate and versus individual B and tailor how you are as a leader to that rather than going in and trying to throw an umbrella around a group of people and do the same thing across the board. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I wanted to go back just a minute to what you're talking about as far as like scaling up and scaling down and thinking about hiring practices and how they impact your overall decision. I would imagine that some of the things you were referencing are things like employment contract lengths or if there is a contract or if it's at will or things like that, as well as knowing what you're committing to an employee. I know that some companies or some countries even don't allow fast layoffs. It's a process and you have to give notice and there's all these other things. And so I would imagine that's what, is that kind of what you meant by fact? If you are hiring in a country that it's not an at-will employment, it's not something you can just terminate very quickly. And there are goods and bads to both of those on every angle. It's probably a factor you need to think about maybe being a little more conservative and how many people you add. And is that what you meant also with the balance of technology? Or maybe I'm... Please no, <laughs> you absolutely are on the money. Ultimately, like if you're in a busy, you're in a position where you're in a country like Ireland, where let fast layoffs for the most part, as I understand it, don't exist. Right. And if you're hiring someone, it's going to take a while. And if, if you had an individual within your organization that isn't performing well, it's also going to take a while to move on from them. So everything has to be a little more meticulous and and looking for more insurance to to get the right people in because making changes down the line is a lot harder. Mm. In the US, and I'm not judging either system, I'm just saying this is how it is. There's good and bad in both, yeah. There absolutely is, and I could talk an hour about the good and bad in both, but in the US, obviously, you can hire people quickly. And you, but you can also move people along quickly as well and terminate individuals quicker for performance issues. So if, if you got a ton of fraud 
uh, out of nowhere or suddenly from a scale perspective, your company suddenly has 50% more fraud friction than it did a year ago. And manual review trend is going to translate well in terms of performance. It might make sense to go in that direction in the US. And then you might look at that and be in Ireland and the numbers are the same, but your ability to actually do it quicker is harder. Mm. So then that may put you back to the drawing board or change how you looked at it in the first place. And you might lean a bit more on automated technology because of that. It's certainly a factor. I think that makes absolute sense. And I know that there are more fraud leaders than ever being asked to consider scaling up teams in other places, whether they're, whether the fraud leader is in the US or they're in Europe, maybe they're being asked to scale up, whether it's a third party or their own employees in India or somewhere like that may have a lower ca- cost of, of, in, of hiring, or maybe yeah. it's of labor, right? Or maybe it's Southeast Asia or something like that. And there's so many things that have to go into consideration from the number of hours that can be worked to skill levels and language and all of that. And sometimes you need bilingual people because you're- Time zones. Time zones. Yes. Yeah. And when I worked for a large travel company, it was, we were fortunate and this was many years ago. Now I know it's a little bit different, but we were fortunate at the time to be able to hire a few people who were native to the countries that we had websites in. So we would have people that worked in Italy or who had lived in Italy, who are from Italy, who worked out of our corporate office in the Seattle area or people from Brazil who worked there. And that was immensely helpful because there are things not just culturally, but geographically about countries. I may not know that's a place where the richest 1% live. And so they might have a little bit of a different behavior than if it was in a smaller suburb that was lesser or just whatever those nuances are. So there's benefits there too, but it's a lot more to balance. You're absolutely right. And I think adaptability is the word of this episode. That's the theme that that I keep picking up for sure. Like, I think that's very much encompassing what we're talking about. And mm-hmm. just to find, finish off your point, like geographical nuances are a big part of manual review as well. Yes. And if you have some, if you have a team, like we, one of the things that we've seen clear indications of when we, as a company, we had teams in Europe and teams in the US and at different times, the teams mm-hmm. in the US would have to supplement the manual yes. review for the team in Europe and vice versa. Or maybe you're doing it to help out with a time zone issue if you're doing 24 hour manual review and you guaranteed you will see a performance decrease when you go cross geography mm-hmm. and performance decrease will go down over time if your coaching and processes are right but it's definitely initially you can take an incredible fraud analyst focusing on the us and just here you go here's a lot of european transactions and there will just be there will just be logic elements to that information that's just different and you need to train that over time for sure that's a good point yeah i think that was the thing about Yeah, those people having the local experience that seemed to help a lot. And they would often work the business hours of their home country and not not in the US because travel is similar in event ticketing that people, they want their confirmation right away. They don't, it's not the same as physical goods being shipped where, okay, I understand that the warehouse probably won't send it till tomorrow. So I'm not in such a hurry, but there's expectations, whether it's a last minute travel or last minute event ticket or not, you're expecting to have that confirmation soon and so there's that that other factor of needing to quickly review things and have a resolution either way 
Yeah, absolutely. So we've gone off on little tangents while also talking about your career, but I want to just circle back a little bit to where you are now, because as you mentioned at the beginning, you're back in Dublin. So you were at StubHub US for four or five years? Yes. Yeah. Four or five years. And obviously COVID had happened in the middle of all this. And that had an impact for a lot of different reasons. Event ticketing, no events. You can just (laughs) don't imagine what happens to transactional volumes. Oh, I, yeah. From that perspective. <laughs> and I had gotten then to a point just to underline it. I met my now wife in the US and snuck her back into Ireland. But ultimately, what had happened is we, I looked at it again from a both, both a professional and a personal level where I had fallen in love with where we lived at this point. But my, my wife hadn't experienced living anywhere else. And mm. from a professional standpoint, I had seven, nearly eight terrific growth years, a, a, an amazing experience within the StubHub eBay organization and gained a lot as part of that. But ultimately trying to con- look at it from the perspective of how can I grow my ability as a fraud expert mm. past where where it is where it was at the time and I felt ultimately I had to move on and get experience elsewhere in order to do that and certainly certainly in, in a different than, than ticketing because I had been in ticketing for so long mm. and then coupling the two things together I looked at opportunities in Ireland and back in Dublin and that's where eShop World came along which I was excited about was an Irish company as well. I loved working for an American company, but I wanted that experience too and see how it differed from a culture perspective. And it just explain a little bit about eShop World very quickly. Like eShop World, what's so unique about it is it's a a direct-to-customer e-commerce solution and we are the merchant of record for, for the transactions, which means we have the fraud responsibility. So we have all these different retailers, all these different products all around the world. And once I thought about that, like the juiciness of that from a fraud prevention perspective, the broadness of that, the strategy that needs to be applied to get that right is it is such it's so unique from a growth perspective. Mm. It was something that appealed to me. Uh, it also facilitated me to once again find myself back in Dublin. So many of us in this in the fraud world are just suckers for challenges, right? But I can relate to that too and be like, eh, because event ticketing is not for the weak of heart. But at the same time, when you start out there, you don't really know any different. But going to an organization that you essentially manage the fraud for dozens of very large retailers, but in other markets, the way I understand it anyways, is a lot of them may be rooted in one geography, but then they they work with eShop World for to help them with their international strategy. And so you're really, but you're representing them, right? So you don't want to upset their customers. You don't want to, it's all those things you're, you're representing these very large, well-known brands, but in a lot of different markets, not just Ireland or the UK in general and EU and all of that and having to make a lot of, and they're all different, right? There's different price points. There's different reseller value. There's different customer behavior. So there's different fraud behavior. That That is a haven for those of us who have been in it for several years and especially growing in your career and in the challenges like you did, wanting to continually move up. That was a great next step as far as challenges go. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I really looked out in terms of find, uh, coming into a company that culturally, even though it was Irish, definitely leaned a little bit into how the American style of culture works. <laughs> that kind of open table. I don't know where that originated. We, the no office, yes. everybody has a desk, yes. everybody's approachable. No walls. Yeah, no walls. I don't know what the name for that is, but essentially that's all I ever knew. I, I couldn't imagine being in, I wouldn't be able to be in an office. I couldn't imagine having a door <laughs> come to me. It would wear right? me out. But that approachability and that structure and that culture, even though Isha World had a unique spin to it, it was still very much within the realm of what I knew. And so that transition was, it suited me as a leader and as, a, as an individual, as, as a next step. And I've been lucky because it's a great company to work for. I know that we didn't entirely plan to spend the entire episode talking about your career, but we did took so many dips in terms throughout it. And there's so many lessons to learn from those experiences. And I do think that it's something really cool about our industry is that there are a lot more opportunities internationally than most people realize. And it really is about balancing your personal and professional life. Like you said, there's certainly because I had a child at a younger age, I didn't have the freedom and flexibility when I was offered positions, whether they were in New York or in Amsterdam or other places, but it sure is something worth considering. And even if you don't, just understanding the things that you need to think about when you might never leave the same location that you live, but that you're going to have to manage other teams elsewhere or things like that as you move up in your career. I just, I think the, one of the best things about this podcast is getting to learn from each other's experiences, uh, both in the fraud fighting way as well as fraud fighter. So on the next episode that you're on, which I'm so excited that I told you, I was like, I know we're going to have so many things we're going to want to talk about. I just need you to come with me for two episodes. I know we're going to dive more into kind of how you approach the strategy and ensure that you have the best technology and how to manage your fraud vendors, which is often a popular topic and one that I think is good to hear from a lot of different people. And then how to apply manual review and where to, and just the role that product should also be playing on your prevention strategy, especially as we continually move more towards leaning more on technology than manual review, but having that balance always. Thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. I was like, I hope I didn't go on too much. I know what you're saying. No, you we, didn't. Yeah. No, I was just glad. No, I wasn't saying that. I just meant, I think that I, I had intended in my mind, I had intended to just be like, oh, career in this, but I think it actually worked out very well because honestly, knowing where in your career you get to learn those lessons has a lot of, yeah, has a lot of value to it. And it makes sense. No, I absolutely love it. I hope like for people listening that it, it has an appealing nature, especially the people more junior. So yeah, that was a lot of fun to talk about. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's so hard sometimes to not, because I always want to talk about all the things all the time, because that's the whole point of this. But I know that it's just so fun for those of us who are often one of the only people in our company doing this to learn from each other in this way. Thank you again so much for this fun conversation and we'll be having another one very soon. I'm very much looking forward to that too. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you.
you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.